Let's pray. Oh, Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the value that we assign to things that we receive is often based largely or even primarily on from whom we receive it. Something as insignificant as a few scribbles on a piece of paper might seem trash to most, but if it is the document of the first time that your four or five-year-old has scratched out, I love you, you might be tempted to frame that piece of paper. In fact, you may do just that. You may have an old trinket having basically no earthly value in itself. Maybe it's from a deceased parent or grandparent or it's a, a family heirloom or some kind of special memory that has been passed down from generation to generation. And because of that, it is worthy of most careful handling and utmost care. You see that a lot of the things in this life, in this world, have a value beyond what they may hold in terms of money or commercial value. A lot of that comes from where we get it. Where does it come from? Who gave this to you? We know how this works. The Lord's Supper is so special and meaningful for God's people, not because of the worth of the bread or the cup, nor because the bread and the cup becomes something else. But the bread and the cup and the Lord's Supper communion are so special for God's people because of the giving and the giver, because the true giver, Jesus Christ, gives to us this covenant meal. And in this miraculously spiritual and profound way, Jesus is the one who gives the elements to us in an ongoing way. But as the minister takes and blesses and breaks and gives, you receive those signs as from the hand of Jesus Christ himself. Why does it mean so much? Because Jesus gives to us in this covenant meal. Jesus Christ gives to us this great sacrament, and thus we must treasure it and receive it, even as we treasure and receive him. So our first point of consideration tonight is this. The blessing is not the food. The blessing is not the food. As we consider 2 Kings chapter 4 and these two great miracles of Elisha, really the the end of this chapter, there are two miracles earlier in chapter 4, and a few weeks ago we actually considered chapter 5, Naaman the Syrian and his cleansing and healing. What we see is that uh, Elisha is going through the countryside teaching the sons of the prophets the ways of God. And it's uh, a time of famine. And there is perhaps a lesson that we can learn there. We find what Elisha is doing, even though there isn't much food around and probably the the people throughout uh, all of, of God's people are scrounging around to try to find ways to make ends meet and try to find enough food, we still find Elisha teaching and the sons of the prophets learning. And we are to be reminded, people of God, that even when things are difficult in our lives, perhaps even when we're struggling to make ends meet, we can never fully reject the nourishment that our souls need. 
It's a good example for us just uh, on the surface of, of this chapter. But it's a time of famine. And what we find is that in times of famine, people may reach for anything. So as a meal is being prepared and stew is being made, someone, one of the servants or sons of the prophets, goes out and takes poisonous, poisonous plants back with him for the stew. It was certainly the case that food is scarce at this time. And so this servant or one of the men goes where he would not normally go, looks where he would not normally look. He takes something he would not otherwise take because he is just trying to find food. Just as people do in times of actual famine, they can do something similar in times of spiritual famine. We reach where we should not reach. We go where we should not go. This can be true of those both inside and outside of the church. We live in an age where we're seeing something very interesting. Right? Christian, Mr. Ryan, can tell you all about what he encounters as his time as an army chaplain. People reaching into forms of new age spirituality, the occult, and pagan forms of worship. Why? Because scientism and materialism and secular humanism starved our world and our civilization of spirituality. And so people go out and they find that the culture is in many ways barren of spirituality and they search for answers. And the land, the landscape is scarce and they go where they should not go. They reach where they should not reach. They take what they might not otherwise take. They found that in our age of spiritual decline and starvation, other forms come about. Poison. Death is in many ways in the pot. Now, inside the church, it can often take uh, less dangerous forms. Not less dangerous, but less outwardly uh, difficult to, to process forms, things that we might think are more harmless. In times of spiritual famine, people are feeling far from the Lord, and the place where they go is not first and foremost the places where God has prescribed for us our health and our strength and our nourishment and our refreshment. Church isn't doing it for me anymore. The preaching of the word and the sacraments have gotten old and stale. I need to go somewhere else. I need to, to, to find other forms and other things. Now, there are other things that we ought to do as Christians. We ought to have our Bibles open each day. We ought to be praying. We ought to be singing together. We ought to be seeking connections and relationships with other Christians in order to encourage them and to build them up. But here's the question. Where is your primary confidence in what God is doing in your life and building you up spiritually? Is it in the life of the church and what he has commanded us to do, to come together as, as his corporate body and sing praises to him and to receive the word of God read and declared to you and the the public prayers of God's people, is that where your, your confidence is rooted? And from there, you can explore and think about other things that you might do so far as they align with God's Word. In times of spiritual famine, it's important, brothers and sisters, to reach where God tells us to reach. 
to go where God tells us to go. And we know that what we do here, we do here because He has prescribed it, and here He has laid a feast for us each and every Lord's Day in spite of your pastor, in spite of all of his insufficiencies and weaknesses. God has given you a feast here, a feast for your soul. But we see the miracle take place, don't we? There is death in the pot. This man has grabbed something, some kind of gourd or all kinds of, uh, the, the uh, commentaries have all kinds of interesting ideas about what this might specifically be, but something is there. It's poisonous. The stew is poisonous. And so Elisha says, add some flour. Now, the Bible is not giving to you a secret of how you make poisonous stew non-poisonous. Gentlemen, if you suspect there's poison in your stew and your wife says, throw a little flour in there, you're just going to want to pause. That's not what actually takes poison away, right? So be very suspicious. But what Elisha does here is a miracle of God. He's showing us that it's God who can feed and nourish these men. Isn't it an amazing thought that God is here working above the molecular makeup of what is actually in the stew and in a sense is himself providing nourishment to their bodies. It's it's going, in a sense, directly from God's power to the men as are taking in this stew which has this poisonous ingredient and this flour that has been thrown into the pot. Now, when we come to the Lord's table, we come not to be physically fed, but to be spiritually fed. And there is not death in the pot the way that there is in the stew, but the same principle is active, that only God can feed, only God can nourish, only God can refresh our souls. This happens, of course, according to our, the great doctrine that we have inherited, not after a, a corporal and a, or a carnal manner, not in a, a fleshly way, but by faith we are made partakers of Christ's body and blood. So we come to the table understanding that it is not bread and wine in themselves that will provide the blessing that our souls need. It's through God alone. See, we come to the sacraments not looking to the thing itself, but looking through the sign, through the thing that God gives to us to Christ, through the sign to Jesus Christ, through the sign to the power of the Holy Spirit, our all-sufficient and all-nourishing God. The blessing here, the nourishment of this story, in a sense, comes not in the food itself, but in the God who changes the food and is able to nourish them. This is foundational to our Reformed view of of the Supper. We find in communion, in the Lord's Supper, God's work by the Spirit. We do not find a physical miracle, but we find a spiritual blessing. We find not molecular changing of the elements, but we find God working by His grace. We look not to the thing itself. We look to the God who works in and through the thing. Children, when you pledge allegiance to the flag, are you saying that 
this piece of cloth is what receives your highest allegiance and love and service. Is it the piece of cloth itself? Well, no. You're pledging allegiance. You're, you're giving uh, your, your, uh, your heart in many ways to the nation. You believe in its ideals, its values, its freedoms, its blessings, that this country, this nation is a good thing, ultimately. It's a good thing, and we ought to work for its good. It's a symbol. It points beyond itself. Similar to what happens in the Lord's Supper. The blessing is not in the food, beloved. Second point, the blessing is found in the giving. The blessing is found in the giving. We see the second miracle in 2 Kings chapter 4. The fourth miracle of this chapter. Elisha feeds 100 men from 20 loaves of barley. A loaf of barley would be barely sufficient to feed one man, right? It'd be kind of, uh, these days, it'd be sort of what sits next to your bowl of soup or something. It's, uh, it would just be part of a meal to feed one man. So certainly, this is a, a, a shortfall, a fairly substantial shortfall if you want to feed 100 men. And yet, they are fed with some left over. Elisha insists twice that this food be given to the men, and the servant says, no, there's not enough. He, he's, he insists, and they, the insisting goes back and forth. Elisha says, give it to the men, for the Lord has declared that they will be fed in this way. Thus says the Lord, Elisha says, they shall eat and have some left. It was God and his word and his promise that feeds them. We can obviously recognize here a foreshadowing of what Jesus does in his earthly ministry. And that's why we read Luke's account of the feeding of the 5,000. The 5,000 men, certainly many more people. The food that is provided there in that story in Luke chapter 9 falls well short of what would be needed in in Jesus' case, feeding 5,000 men and more. Jesus has less food and many more people to feed. But in both stories, the eyes of our hearts are drawn away from the physical food itself. In Elisha's story, we focus on what God has declared. Elisha says, God has said to us, this will be enough. They will eat and have some left over. In Jesus' story, what do we notice? What gets our attention? Well, we focus, and perhaps growing up in the church, we hear this story so much in Sunday school and other places, the five loaves and the two fish. I want to suggest to you, though, what Luke is emphasizing to us, that Jesus does four things. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. That is where the story changes. That is where the miracle takes place. It's not the bread. We know that Jesus didn't receive some kind of magical bread. It's a self-multiplying, repeating thing. It's not magical bread. And it's, it's the bread that is blessed, the bread that is broken, and the bread that is given where the miracle happens. Later on in Luke, and Luke connects these for us, in terms of the words that he uses, very distinctly, very clearly, he does this for us. Jesus will do this again. He will take, he will bless, he will break, and he will give. 
on the, the night of the Last Supper, when Jesus institutes the church's ongoing practice of the Lord's Supper of communion, he will do these very same four things. So in Luke, we are meant to connect very closely these two stories, the feeding of the 5,000 men and the Last Supper, very closely connected as Luke is presenting the life of Jesus before us. And important to understand and remember, in the Last Supper, the disciples have already eaten. They've already received physical nourishment. Their bodies were not needing more nourishment, but their souls were. So how do we connect these two things and take some of the themes from them and apply them to our consideration tonight? Well, the first is is very clear. The first theme that that we see, the feeding of the 5,000, is that, again, God gives the nourishment, just as we see in, in Elisha's story. It's God who provides this. Now, in the feeding of the 5,000 men, it's the God-man. It's Jesus Christ. And he comes here in his earthly ministry, and thus what he does is greater than what Elisha did. He feeds many more with much less. And so we also see very clearly the theme of abundance, that God provides abundantly beyond all that we ask or need that God is an overflowing fountain of goodness. His goodness runs over, runs over the edge, so that those who are ready to receive their cup might run over. As the twelve would have observed Jesus on the night of the Last Supper, they would have seen him do these same things, and we can't speculate as to whether or not the connection happened then or whether it clicked later, but he takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. And at some point in the apostles' lives, I am fairly certain that that clicked for them, and what they would have understood, what they would have come to comprehend is that Jesus will give me all that I need, just as he did when he feeds the 5,000 men. And you have all of these basketfuls left over, right? He gives the crowds more than they needed. He gave the crowd more than they could have eaten themselves. There was a lot that was left to happen in Jesus' life uh, and his ministry after the Last Supper. He was to be betrayed and arrested and tried, convicted, beaten, led to Calvary, nailed to the cross, laid in the grave. He is raised from the dead. He communes with the disciples for 40 days, and he ascends into heaven. There is a lot that was still yet to happen, but at some point, whether it was between this and the ascension of Christ or when they're out doing ministry in the church, there would have come to many of them, Jesus gives us all that we need. He provides us all that we need. And even beyond this, they would have sensed the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit who dwells in them now as the fulfillment of the temple. They would have remembered that it is the Spirit who is with them to make Christ present to them spiritually. And the Spirit is their source by which they feed on Christ, the living bread from heaven. We can now connect some of these things to the Lord's Supper. What does it do 
as we come to the table. What, what, what do these kinds of things do? Right? God, only God provides the nourishment. The blessing is not in the food. The blessing is in the giving. Well, we are trained then. We are taught and we are trained to raise our eyes. Raise the eyes of our hearts from the earthly elements to Jesus Christ. The bread of our souls. Just as in all of the miracles here, both that of Elisha and of Jesus, the source of nourishment is not the earthly elements. In one of the stories, you have poison, and the men walk away nourished. The other two, you have not nearly enough food, and everyone walks away with a full belly. They have all that they need. The source of the nourishment is not in the earthly elements or what you see before you. The source of nourishment is in the God who provides the God who gives, the God who institutes these things for us. Our forms, the forms in the, the blue hymnal that we use and others, what do they call us to do? Raise your eyes from what you hold, from what you see. Raise your eyes from the table to where Jesus Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then, so our eyes are raised up, and then we focus not on the elements, but what we can focus on is what Jesus Christ has done in the supper. Taking, blessing, breaking, and giving. Guy Waters, uh, a theologian, writes this, we may observe furthermore that it is not the bread and wine of themselves that point to Jesus Christ. It is the bread given and received and the cup distributed and received that point to Jesus Christ. So if there is a moment that we as Reformed Christians look to in which we find the power of blessing, it is when the minister takes and blesses and breaks and gives in the name of Christ and he calls you to receive it as from the hand of Christ himself. The giving is the thing. It's not the bread, but the given bread. It's not the cup, but the given cup. And Jesus has ordained that it would be so. So as we close this Lord's Day, beloved, our third point, the ultimate blessing. Blessing is not found in the food. The blessing is found in the giving. The ultimate blessing is in receiving the giver. To come worthily to the Lord's table and to truly receive the elements is to do what? It is to receive the giver. To partake worthily of the Lord's Supper is to, with a heart full of faith, look to the life and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and receive all that he is for you, for the life of your souls, for the salvation of your souls. The great blessing of the supper is that it's a way to tangibly receive the gospel with fresh eyes. And when we are doing so rightly, what we are receiving is Christ himself, the picture of what Jesus gives in the Last Supper to the apostles, what he is doing, he's painting the picture of what he is, is, has done and what he is going to do. Just as the bread is taken, blessed, broken, and given, so we find Jesus doing the same with himself. He leaves heaven's glory taken from heavenly land 
to come and walk the earth for us. He was blessed by being anointed by the Holy Spirit. We have learned about this, that in his human nature, Jesus received, receives this anointing of the Holy Spirit so that he and he alone might be the only mediator between God and man, our prophet and priest and king, anointed by the Spirit to carry out his work, blessed. He was broken. He was split, cleft, so that his blood ran out on our behalf, that we might be sprinkled with his blood, that we might be clean, taken, blessed, broken, and given. Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, given to you, declared and offered to you and to the world in the gospel that God might work through our seeing him presented to us in this way and that God might regenerate hearts as Jesus Christ is put on display in the proclamation of what he has done in the gospel, taken, blessed, broken, and given. When we rightly receive the elements, beloved, we are receiving in our hearts the giver, the true giver, the ultimate giver. Catechism says he wants to teach us that, the bre- that as bread and wine nourish our temporal life, so to his crucified body and shed blood truly nourish our souls for eternal life. We share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance, and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. Is that how deep and sure your faith is, that you look to Christ and you can say with confidence that it is as if his, that I suffered in the way that he did. That is how God looks upon me. That is how forgiven I am. That is how righteous I have been made through the life of Christ. So as we think upon all of these things and prepare to come around the table. Do you have this true and vital and abiding faith? Are you a true believer? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, broken for you in the gospel? Are you right with God through Christ and through his church? Do you walk in faith and repentance? Are you seeking a true and abiding repentance and love and new obedience? Do you want to honor God with your life? Have you Has the light gone on, as we said, as we considered the pearl of great price and the treasure hidden in the field, that you have estimated, at least somewhat rightly, the the value of the kingdom, that this is worth everything? Has the light begun to, to go on in that way? Is that how much you see the worth of Jesus Christ? It's not a table for the perfect. That's One of the great promises, one of the great provisions of the Lord's Supper, it is not for the perfect. It's not a place where we come because we think we deserve it. If we ever think that, we should run as fast as we can away from that holy sacrament. I love the way that the OPC form puts it. It is one thing to eat and drink worthily. It is quite another to believe that you are worthy to eat and drink. It's medicine for poor, sick 
souls. So receive the giver, the one who is taken from heaven's glory, submitted to the Father's will, blessed to fulfill all righteousness, broken for you and for sinners, given to us in the gospel. Receive him, live for him, and might God prepare us to partake next week, Lord willing. Let's pray.